Training camp is just around the corner, and the Seahawks will be looking for several returning veterans on defense to step up to help a unit that finished 25th in scoring defense a year ago. Which players do we think are primed for a breakout? We're going to be breaking it all down in our latest Tuesday edition of Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined for this Tuesday edition, almost a week away from training camp, by my co-host in crime. Rob Rang. A special thanks to all the 12s out there, whether you're listening north of the border in British Columbia or you're in the middle of the country in Wichita, Kansas. We greatly appreciate you making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We are now eight days away from training camp. It is drawing ever so close the beginning of the 2023 season. We're going to be getting closer to the top of our 90-man countdown and continuing our all-underrated squad. Today, it's all about the beef the big and heavies on the offensive line. We'll be looking at our tackles, guards, and centers. Should be a really fun episode, so let's get to it. Now, if you're lead story here on our Tuesday edition of Locked On Seahawks, as we detailed yesterday, the Seahawks are going to be looking for several of their returning veterans to rise to the occasion and make a big leap in 2023. On offense, there aren't near as many question marks when they finish in the top 10 in scoring. Almost all their key players are back from the offensive line all the way to the running backs and receivers. But, Rob, on defense, it's a little different story. There's been a lot more turnover, whether it's bringing in veterans, drafting high-profile players. And there's some players that were on the roster a year ago that are going to have a prime opportunity with some of the veterans that left this offseason to play a lot more snaps. So I think this is going to be a much more intriguing conversation when we are looking at potential breakout players on the defensive side of the football for the Seahawks. In fact, I think you could make an argument for a player at all three levels of the defense going into training camp, and you could have a sound argument. Yeah, I 100% agree with you, Corey. But I mean, I really think that if you're looking for the, the breakout player on Seattle's defense, you're basically looking for a guy who's going to be able to do the exact same thing that Tariq Woolen did a year ago. And that's where I want to kind of start off the conversation here. It's just like in yesterday's show. Those of you who joined us, thank you very much, as Corbin said earlier. Um, but we broke down the players on the offensive side, and we started off by just kind of having this disclaimer that we're not going to be talking about rookies. So, you know, all those high draft picks, um, that Seattle took are not going to be Devin Witherspoon. We're not going to be talking about you know any of those other top pros, uh, top players. And you know you talked about the the fact that you really think that you can make an argument for a player in the secondary at linebacker or defensive line that could be that breakout player because Seattle has had so much turnover at the linebacker position. Obviously, I, I could have talked about Bobby Wagner, but we know that what the, the future Hall of Famer Bobby Wagner is going to be offering. And and I thought about Devin Bush for a while there just because of of course. Jordan Brooks is coming back for the injury. But again, Devin Bush is at least somewhat established in the NFL. And if he is truly going to have an unbelievable breakout season for the Seahawks, that would be a shocker. And, and I, I'm all in on that possibility. But I wanted to kind of stay young, stay fresh with some Seahawks players. And 
Corbin, there's a player that you and I talked about a year ago that we were both very excited about what we saw during the rookie mini camps. And he's only shown flashes um, because he was on Seattle's practice squad. But the linebacker Vi Jones is the player that I want to talk about here for a moment. Now, again, I do think that there is a very strong possibility that at the end of the year, when the Seattle is hopefully making their playoff run, that your starting linebackers are very likely to be Bobby Wagner and Jordan Brooks or Bobby Wagner and Devin Bush. But if there is a linebacker that's going to kind of come out of the woodwork, rather than being, say, a Radigan or some of the other linebackers on Seattle's roster, Vi Jones, to me, is the dynamic athlete that you're looking to kind of build around. 6'2", 225-pounder, guy that started his college career at USC, transferred over to North Carolina State, was not invited to the combine, but when he had his pro day, he was absolutely spectacular in terms of just the pure athletic testing. And you go back on tape and you see explosive plays. He had four forced fumbles his final year. He had three block kicks his final year for North yep. Carolina State. So to me, Corbin, that's where I think the Vi Jones could be that, uh, that, that kind of breakout guy, that wild card guy on defense. Do I think that he's going to put up the biggest numbers? No. But I do think that he's going to provide perhaps some explosive plays on defense and absolutely some explosive plays on special teams that's going to help catapult Seattle's defense and special teams to a little bit better level in 2023. And if the Seahawks are playing a lot of nickel and dime packages, maybe an athlete like Vi Jones who can move around in coverage and can rush the passer, maybe a guy like that can find his way into the lineup for a handful of snaps every game. And this could also be about special teams because if you're blocking kicks, that's defensive. I know it's a yep. special teams thing, but that is all about defense. And this guy was one of the best in college football at it. So he was somebody that was kind of on my periphery a little bit with this, but I just thought it's going to be really difficult, even with Jordan Brooks being out potentially for the beginning of the season. It's going to be tough for him to get onto the field defensively to be able to get this award, but he could be a breakout player in camp and make the roster, which would be a big jump from a year ago on the practice squad. I'm going to stick with a guy that was a rookie a year ago that was drafted by the Seahawks. And We've looked at the edge rushing group, and I, I actually considered Daryl Taylor for this, even though Daryl Taylor had nine and a half sacks last year. I still feel like he is still a long way from his potential, but I decided to stay at that position with a guy that maybe isn't going to have a huge jump statistically in terms of sacks, but I expect a lot more pressures in a more expanded role for Boye Mafe. And the reason he is going to have that expanded role, we've talked about it time and time again the run defense. I don't think last year was a mirage. You saw a guy that played physical football. He used his hands really well. He, he stood up at the point of attack. He played sound with his gap responsibility. That was maybe the biggest surprise for me because this is a guy that came into the NFL pretty raw, even though he played a handful of snaps in each of his four years at Minnesota, he had never really been a full-time starter. So I did not expect to see a guy that was going to be really sound from that aspect. I thought that was going to be maybe the biggest area of concern from growing pains. But instead, he was arguably away from Uchenna Nuosu. You can maybe make an argument he was better than Nuosu at sticking to his gap responsibilities and doing a good job of limiting runs his way. When teams ran at Boy Mafe, it typically did not end well. He had some tackles at the line of scrimmage, a few tackles behind the line of scrimmage. So Seattle with the struggles they had last year defending the run. If Boy Mafe is able to do what he did last year, 
he is going to be on the field a lot by default because you've got to have somebody out there that can defend the run. And it might not translate to him getting 10, 12 sacks, but if they can get five or six from him, which I think is a very strong possibility, and you could get 25, 30 pressures out of him, which again, I think is a very strong possibility. He's got that kind of athletic ability then he has a chance to be a breakout player, even if it doesn't necessarily translate to a huge jump in sacks. You can see it in big statistical jumps elsewhere. So Boy Mafe is certainly a player that I think is a really good opportunity to be a breakout player for the Seahawks. And my honorable mention, I, I mentioned Dale Taylor, but I actually say Kobe Bryant as an honorable mention, just to throw a tidbit out there, because this kid last year had four forced fumbles and he gave up no touchdowns in the last nine games of the season in the slot corner position. It was a new position for him. Rob, those are the kind of guys you like to look at closely. And Vi Jones had not played much as an off-ball linebacker coming to the Seahawks. So those guys that are transitioning to a new position, those are usually sneaky good picks for breakout players because once they get more comfortable, you usually do see a really large leap. No, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why I went with Vi Jones. And it's funny that you mentioned Kobe Bryant as your honorable mention pick. That was my honorable mention pick as well. Um, I strongly uh, considered, debated uh, both Kobe Bryant as well as Trey Brown, because I do think that besides who I think are going to be Seattle's top three corners, Rick Woolen, uh, Mike Jackson, and Devin Witherspoon, whatever order I expect Witherspoon to get that starting role. But I do think those are your top three. I am fascinated by that battle between Trey Brown and Kobe Bryant. And the the statistics that you just mentioned with Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, the, the four force fumbles, not allowing a single touchdown in his final nine games. Corbin, there's a lot of statistics that are floating around out there that when I watch the tape, I think uh, those don't really – reflect what I'm actually seeing that those absolutely reflect what I saw with Kobe Bryant a year ago. And that's one of the reasons why I'm very excited to see what he's able to do in year two as well. Coming up next year on our Tuesday edition of locked on Seahawks, we are going to continue our all underrated squad with the big and heavies, the buffet bashers, the offensive line. We'll be looking at tackles, guards, and centers should be a really fun segment coming up next year. We'll be right back. This episode is brought your way by FanDuel. Take your first swing at betting MLB on FanDuel and get 10 times your first bet amount in bonus bets up to $200. That's right. Just bet 20 bucks and you'll land $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. That's 200 You can spend betting everything from the money line to the over-under to who you think is going to hit the first home run of the day. It's all on an app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Plus, when you win, you can get paid instantly. There's no better place to bet on MLB than FanDuel, America's number one sports book. So sign up today and visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get up to $200 in bonus bets. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. You're listening to the Tuesday edition of Locked On Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there. We greatly appreciate you making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. For every dayers, we're finally going to get to the present interior offensive line on tomorrow's show. We've had a lot to talk about the last few days. We're going to continue our training camp preview with the guards and centers, a position group that the Seahawks expect to be upgraded heading into the 2023 season. You won't want to miss it. Continuing our all-underrated squad, we've really touched on most of the skill positions to this point, Rob. We've got the electric running backs, the receivers, the quarterbacks, 
We've had a chance to look at corners and linebackers and safeties. It's time to get to the big and heavies, though, the ones that win the football games, the offensive line. And most of the Pete Carroll tenure offensive line has not been viewed as a strength. But if you look back at earlier Seahawks squads, there have been some really good offensive lines, even on teams that didn't fare well in the win-loss column. And I think that's going to be reflected today when we look at tackles, guards, and centers on our all-underrated squad. Let's start with the most important positions, especially left tackle, the tackle spots for the Seahawks. And I'm curious what direction you went here because I feel like Seattle, you know, Walter Jones clearly is in the clouds compared to everybody else that's played tackle for the Seahawks. But there's been some other pretty good ones in their 40-plus years of existence that have played left and right tackle for this team. Oh, no question about it. And as you said, I mean, Seattle has a a, a pretty strong uh, record as far as having very talented offensive linemen. And you, you, your name dropped the best of the bunch, of course, on Walter Jones. But the Hall of Famers and Steve Hutchinson and Kevin Moai, I mean, it's three different Hall of Famers, different positions. So that speaks for itself. Several pro bowlers. Um, and as far as the tackles, I think our, you know, our mindset immediately goes to that, that all-important left tackle position. Um, you know, certainly what we saw just this past year from Charles Cross, what we've seen here recently with Dwayne Brown, Russell Okung, there, Seattle's had some very good left tackles. I, I'm going to start off with one of the very first first round picks that Seattle used on an offensive tackle, and that being Andy Heck. Now, I, I'm dating myself a little bit here, Corbin, and there's a reason why I'm wearing this Boston College shirt. I'll get to that in a moment. But real quick of Andy Heck, for those Seahawks fans out there who don't remember Andy Heck, and maybe you won't because Seattle drafted him 15th overall all the way back in 1989. So, Corbin, you may not have been around at that point, but uh, I just I was a month old. I remember it vividly. There you go. Well, I certainly do remember 1988, actually. Notre Dame, Lou Holtz was the coach. The Fighting Irish won a national championship. They were on TV, of course, every weekend. And, and along their offensive line, they were very good then, too, was this guy, Andy Heck. And he winds up being Seattle's number 15 overall selection, uh, first-round pick. He was a co-captain for them. And I just saw a, a player that looked like he was ready right out of the box and was going to be kind of the you know the new guy that Seattle kind of needed. Um, he did not actually start uh, as, a, as a true or as his, his first year, um, but he wound up starting 12 years in the NFL. He started for five years – Played five years with Seattle, four years of which was a starter. Um, he started 164 games in his NFL career, but never got a Pro Bowl nod. Um, the, the last 19 years, he's actually spent as an offensive line coach all throughout the NFL, the last 10 years in a row in Kansas City. Uh, you know, right now, of course, there's the defending Super Bowl champions, with Andy Reid, a former offensive line coach himself as the head coach. Uh, I just see Andy Heck as being one of the truly most underrated offensive linemen in Seattle's history because he was very good. He was very reliable. And uh, and again, he's a player that I know is a first round pick that he's got people know about him. Um, but I don't know that there's a lot of people in today's modern era that know know anything about Andy Heck. Yeah, Heck was an interesting player, but I think he's had a more dynamic coaching career than what he did as a player. And maybe that's taken away from his accomplishments on the field, what he's been able to do in Kansas City. I stayed a little bit more recent because you mentioned Russell Okung, and and I get why some Seahawks fans have not necessarily been big fans of him over the years because of the injury issue. He had a lot of durability concerns during his time in Seattle, but 
He was a Pro Bowl selection at one point for the team. And he was a key member of that Super Bowl winning squad in 2013. He started in that game. He was a player that I felt like if he could have just played a few more games, a couple other seasons, he would have been a Pro Bowler. That year that he was a Pro Bowl selection, he might have been an all-pro pick if he played in every single game. He just always had one little knicker bruise that cost him a couple of games. There were a few seasons where it cost him more than that. So the injuries were certainly an issue. But you want to talk about an athletic left tackle that looked the part and could get after it in the run game. Marshawn Lynch loved running behind Russell Okun, and for good reason, because this guy was nimble nimble with his feet, but he also was nasty. He had the mentality we're looking for for a downhill run game. And so I thought he was a very good player. I think it was a good first-round pick. I know some look at the position, you know, picked sixth overall. You expect the next Walter Jones, but that's probably expecting a little bit too much. He still had a very solid career, had some good years with the Broncos and the Chargers, Uh, to close out his career as well. Uh, Now, if you've seen him, he's like one-third of the size he was when he played for the Seahawks. So uh, it's hard to tell that the guy was a tackle in the NFL, but he was a really solid one at that. And I went a little bit earlier than that for my other tackle position. And this one might draw some controversy because I remember when the Seahawks made the Super Bowl in 2005 for the first time, Sean Locklear was viewed by a lot of people as the weak link of that offensive line. But I think that tells you more about the line that he played on than it does Sean Locklear. He would have been one of the better tackles in the league playing for any other team. But, oh, by the way, I've got Walter Jones in the prime of his career across the other side for me. I've got another Hall of Famer here, Steve Hutchinson. Uh, you know, I've got Chris Gray, and I've also got uh, Robbie, Tobeck. Position, Robbie Tobeck. I mean, you've got a loaded line, one of the best offensive lines I've ever seen. And Locklear was a good player in his own right. And what I always loved about him is he was another guy that had a chip on his shoulder, was nasty, and really got after it. And so I know that he's a player that people look at, and he had some big penalties in the Super Bowl that really weren't penalties. The holding penalty that John Madden was like, I don't see the hold. There were some things working against him, but I thought he was a really solid starter for a number of years for the Seahawks. And I loved the physicality he played with. So having him and Russell Okun on the same line, I think they were both underrated talents at their position. Now let's go inside now, Rob, to the guard spot real quick. And I'm going to have somebody in that spot that maybe he's going to catch some people off guard until they hear the stats. But I'm curious who ends up making the two guard spots for you on this team. Well, just just real quickly, you mentioned kind of the chippiness uh, as far as tackles. I mean, my my right tackle was Bruno Giacomini, who might have been the chippiest player I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> and so just just real quick, I mean, he he is a guy. I mean, he's just a, a just a fun story. I mean, this is a guy who is a Brazilian descent. Um, he 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 didn't play much uh, football in high school. Um, actually, focusing more on basketball. Um, was a very good basketball player. Only had one FBS program offer him a scholarship. That was Louisville. He started off on defense, um, literally playing edge rusher and actually linebacker, if you can believe that. Switched to tight end. Finally, his junior senior year, they moved him to tackle. It doesn't even become a full time start to a senior year. Green Bay selects him in the fifth round as developmental player. And this is what I love about the story about Bernard Giacomini. I apologize. I know we got to talk about guards. But this, to me, really reflects the Seahawks and how things started to change once Pete Carroll and John Schneider got in. As I mentioned before, Brennan Giacomini was drafted by the Green Bay Packers. And that was way back in, I think it was 2010 or so. Uh, anyways, 
in, in that year, Green Bay won the Super Bowl. They were the best team in the league. John Shire, of course, hailed from Green Bay. He knows that, and he tries to – he does, not try, he does take away Jacqueline from Green Bay's practice squad, very similar to the way they stole D.J. Reed from the 49ers a couple of years ago. Jacqueline winds up – he had never started in the NFL, doesn't start his first year in Seattle, but winds up starting the next three years for the Seahawks. And you mentioned before, Sean Lockley, and I agree with you. That's the best Seattle's offensive line I ever saw – was the one that went to Seattle's first Super Bowl. Well, the one that they won, Giacomini was the starting right tackle. And, and so to me, his story, I think, is underrated um, in, in terms of Seahawks lore. And again, talk about chippy and talk about tough guy and nasty, all that. He, Giacomini certainly was that. As, as far as my guards, just real quick, I'll, I'll transition. My, my two guards are could not be more different. The first one is one of my all-time favorite Seahawks. Seattle drafted Pete um, Pete Kendall out of Boston College, and it feels like I've had this shirt since then. Um, but uh, he was also a first-round pick. But he was about as nasty and tough and physical as a player as I've ever seen in all of the NFL. Uh, I believe he wound up playing for, for 14 seasons in the NFL, um, five of them in Seattle. He, he wound up going and playing very well elsewhere. But I just think that he is one of the all-time most underrated offensive linemen. Never got, never went to a Pro Bowl, missed one start. In every single other game that he played, 189 games, he started 188 of them. So to me, that is the, just the epitome of reliability. Uh, but as I mentioned, he was the first round pick from Boston College, a, a well-known program. For right guard, I'm going to switch to kind of a little bit of a smaller school program. They are, at that time were known as Northeastern Louisiana, Northeast Louisiana. It's now known as University of Louisiana Monroe. And when the Seahawks selected Jeff Blackshear out of Northeast Louisiana, all those years ago, it was in the eighth round, which, of course, they don't have the eighth round anymore. <laughs> um, so I, I just think that is kind of a cool story. You can be talking about a, a true sleeper kind of candidate. He comes to Seattle and becomes one of the most physically dominant, big, tough right guard run blockers, uh, you know, really in the league. Certainly was that at least when I was kind of growing up and watching the Seattle at that time, there was a lot of talk that he was the biggest, most physical and strongest player on the Seahawks roster. When he went to the Baltimore Ravens, I kept reading up on him also was considered the biggest, strongest, most powerful player for that team. And that's saying something for the Baltimore Ravens of, of that era. So we're talking about a terrific player, a 6'6", 330 pounds, unbelievable power. Um, and and the, the impact that he had on Seattle's running game uh, you know, really spoke for itself, was not a great pass protector. But in terms of moving people to the line of scrimmage, we're talking about like more recent players like a DJ Fluker or a Jermaine Effetti, just big, powerful kind of guys. Jeff Flat Jeff Blackshear was one of those type of players. It's funny that you mentioned Pete Kendall because I'm going to be staying in the same era. As I mentioned, there were some bad Seahawks teams that had some really good offensive lines. And it, I, I keep saying this on the show, if those early to mid-1990s teams could have just had an average quarterback, they'd probably win 10 games because they had a good offensive line. And one of the centerpieces, Kevin Wise in the Hall of Fame. So people are going to be laughing. Why is he on your all-underrated team? This is based on his time in Seattle. He played his first four seasons in Seattle. No Pro Bowls, no All-Pro selections, but you can't tell me he was not one of the best centers in the league the last couple of years that he was in Seattle. And oh, by the way, as a rookie at guard, he was one of the best guards in the NFL, but he played on a really bad team that didn't win a lot of games. And you're playing in the Pacific Northwest as well. He was off of the national radar, but Kevin Y, you could already see early in his career, 
that this guy was going to be a very special player. And he showed he could have been a Hall of Famer at guard if he stayed there. He had that kind of ability, but obviously ended up having a fantastic career with the Jets and the Titans playing the center position. Now is in Canton, but he was a guy that really set the tone up front, opened things up for Chris Warren, and also was a very good pass protector. He could do it all. One of the best interior offensive linemen that's played in the league, and Seattle had him in the first four years, and he was really good, just nobody really noticed unless you were a Seahawks fan. As for my other guard, Edwin Bailey, it's the other end of the spectrum. Edwin Bailey started 120 games for the Seahawks in his career, no Pro Bowls, no All-Pro selections, and such a weird path. He was a starter as a rookie, and we're talking a late-round pick. He was a starter as a rookie and then ended up being on the bench for two years and then returned to the starting lineup. Normally, guys, when that happens, they're either off the team or they're out of the league. But he ended up returning the starting lineup for a long time for the Seahawks. And another guy that could get after in the run game, a above-average athlete, really solid pass protector that played in a lot of playoff games, started a lot of playoff games for the Seahawks. So a little bit different dynamic there, a guy that didn't get any attention in terms of national narrative. And Kevin Y eventually did, just not in Seattle, unfortunately. But he's on the all-underrated team for me. Real quick, at the center position, I'm going really recent here. The last time the Seahawks had an established center for multiple seasons, and that was Justin Britt. And he was not a star. He wasn't a pro bowler, not even a top 10 center, maybe one year in his career that you could have maybe made the argument there. But he was always in that upper half to me. He was in that 10 to 15 range. He was physical, nasty at the point of attack, and he protected pretty well. Russell Wilson, I think, would tell you, hey, I had a lot of different centers during my time in Seattle, but Justin Britt was that one constant that did protect him and so even though he wasn't an all-pro or pro bowler, I mean, there's a big drop-off from Max Unger and Robbie Toback, the two elite centers in Seahawks franchise history. I feel like Justin Britt, though, deserves to be in that next category as a guy that was a really solid starter, just not a star at the position. Oh, I 100% agree. I think that you could win with players like Justin Britt. I don't think that you have to have the best player every single position. Britt, I thought, was is a terrific choice, in my opinion. I, I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball myself at, at the center position. That's with a, a, a veteran who played 17 seasons in the NFL, Corbin. Only two of them with the Seahawks. So I guess in a way, maybe I'm stretching the rules here, but Ray Donaldson, again, it just it's such a credible story that I want to make sure I, I highlight him for a moment. Um, when he signed with the Seattle in 1993 and 1994, as we talked about, Seattle was not a very good football team. They had never led their conference, which in those days, of course, was the AFC. They were part of the AFC West with the Broncos, the Raiders, the Chargers, and the Chiefs. And Seattle had never had any type of dominant running game. And then they signed Donaldson. Donaldson had gone to four Pro Bowls with the Baltimore Colts. Um, and he winds up actually going to two more Pro Bowls with the Dallas Cowboys after he leaves Seattle. It's amazing how when player, good players go to Seattle, they don't go to Pro Bowls anymore. That's still a theme in today's era, I suppose. <laughs> but the, the point I'm making here, though, is that uh, when he did come to Seattle, that was the very first year, 1994, where, where Seattle did 
lead the AFC in, in rushing yards. Um, you know, he was the, the 30th overall pick. Uh, that was a high second round pick in those days and centers just to get, get drafted that high. When he actually earned the starting job in the beginning in 1981, they announced the, the starting roles, you know, starting players. He was the very first, at least according to the, the different information I've read online, including in the Hall of Fame, uh, that he was the very first black man to be named the starting center for a, any NFL team entering the year, which is an unbelievable accomplishment, obviously. So all of those different things are, are reasons why I think that Ray Donaldson, to me, is a very fitting member of our underrated, all underrated offensive line for the Seattle Seahawks. As I mentioned before, only two seasons in Seattle, but Corbin, he wound up playing 244 games in the NFL, starting 228 of them, did win a Super Bowl with the Cal Dallas Cowboys after his time in Seattle when he was the oldest starting center in the NFL. I think the guy should be in the Hall of Fame. And so I definitely wanted to mention him. Maybe he can get one of those hats that has the five different teams on there because he played in a lot of different clubs, but one of them should be Seattle. Yeah, Donaldson's a fun fit here, and he was really solid. Again, the offensive line was not the issue that held the Seahawks back in the mid-90s from winning many games in the AFC West. We're going to shift gears now back to our 90-man countdown. We've got number six through number four. And, Rob, these are some established players. We're, we're now getting into the big-name stars. I mean, we just talked about Bobby Wagner yesterday. And we're going to be talking about another key player on that defense. There's a lot of defensive players here clustered in the top 10. And Quandre Diggs got off to kind of a slow start last year for the Seahawks. He was coming off that fractured fibula, the dislocated ankle. He had surgery. And he only was able to cut a month before training camp. So this guy had a very shortened offseason. And you could see that early in the year. But once we got to the second half, you started to see the ball hawking Quandre Diggs of old. Four interceptions in the last seven games. And he led all qualified safeties, Rob. 47.6% completion percentage against. So teams, when they tested that post or the, or the uh, seam route, Quandre Diggs was, as he always has, making them pay for it. And had a 60 quarterback rating against. I mean, he gave up one touchdown, but otherwise he was near flawless in coverage or maybe was more missed tackles early in the year, but overall had another really good season. And with a regular off season, I'm expecting this could potentially be Quandre Dix's best season. When you look at the talent that's around him in that secondary. I certainly think there's a possibility of that, and, and that's remarkable considering how good that he has been. And, and I've got to hold my hand up here because, Corbin, I, I was ready to bash Quandre Diggs. As you talked about, I mean, he did miss some tackles early in the season. He did have some dropped interceptions early in the season, and he turned the season around. And, you know, obviously with the, the, the critical interception against the Rams that propelled the Seahawks into the, into the playoffs, you know, I mean, he was kind of the, the exclamation point at the end of the year that Juno Smith was to start the year. And so I think it was truly a, a very a remarkable season in a lot of ways for Quandre Diggs. And we have to remember, this is a guy that was a, a day three selection. He is shorter than most safeties. He doesn't have the elite size or the elite speed that some safeties have, but he is as instinctive and as, you know, cagey, I guess, as just about any free safety out there. I mean, he will set people up 
the way that, uh, you know, the great ones do. I mean, we, we talk, we throw out names like Ed Reed and, and guys like that, but that's the type of instincts I, I see with Quandre Diggs. And as you talked about with the secondary play and all the talent that Seattle has back there, if Seattle truly does have a couple of corners that we believe that can be true man-to-man kind of guys, allowing Quandre Diggs to go back there and just kind of roam and play center field when you have at least one more safety in Julian Love that can cover now, and you have another safety in, in Jamal Adams that might be able to pass, get a pass rush. We, we talk so much about the Legion of Boom, but this is a secondary that's pretty darn exciting as well, and Quandre Diggs is the leader of it. Yeah, Quandre Diggs is the expert at putting the butter on the bread, buttering up the quarterbacks a little bit, giving them a look, and then, oh, wait, he's not doing what I thought he was going to do. Uh, very Ed Reed-esque in that. And again, we're not saying – I mean, there's one Ed Reed. But of course, Quandre yeah. Diggs has those kind of instincts and ball skills, the ability to trick quarterbacks. He's as good as any safety in the NFL today at doing that. On the other side of the ball, this is going to be a very Big 12-centric episode, another former Big 12 alumni coming from Kansas State. Tyler Lockett's greatness. I don't want to say it's become boring because for me that's not the case, but he's so consistent year in, year out. You can just expect 1,000 receiving yards. 80-plus receptions, very few drops. Though we did have two last year. We're going to hold that against you, Tyler. you got to be better this year. But he has been so darn consistent year after year after year after year that it's become methodical. And for some, they might say, yeah, it's become boring. There are times you're like, I don't feel like he's putting up big stats. And you're like, oh, he's on pace for 1,000 yards. And that's just the way that Tyler Lockett is. He is a beacon of consistency. He's a beacon of toughness. He's a beacon of durability. The guy missed one game with a fractured hand as a receiver and then came back late in the season for the Seahawks. So this guy checks off all the boxes. We've talked about how he's extremely, speaking of underrated, I mean, criminally underrated still because the numbers he puts up. And I almost wonder if it is because of that consistency never reaching the level where he's getting like 1,600 yards in a season, but he's so consistent year after year, 1,000 yards. He's going to get you eight-plus touchdowns every single year. I mean, he does it year in, year out, and that's what makes him, in my opinion, a top-10 receiver in the NFL, even if he isn't nationally viewed that way when he should be. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, he absolutely should be. I mean, five straight years of at least eight touchdown receptions. I don't know if there's a single receiver in the NFL who has that uh, other than Tyler Lockett. And, you know, I, his just his production. I mean, we, we were talking about this before the show started. Corbin, he was, he was credited or, or blamed, I guess would be a better word, for two drops. And we were like both surprised by that because he is so consistent. You know, it's like the, the word you use the word consistent there a lot. Uh, it, it's almost predictable and, and, and boring, I think, is the way that some people look at it. You know, it's like, oh, well, it's it's third and eight. So Tyler Lockett's going to do a you know an eight yard comeback and get that first down by a half an inch. I mean, he is a magician at that. I mean, he just his understanding of the sticks and where he has to get you, understanding the sideline, the way he drags his feet. Uh, you know, I mean, he is just remarkable in that way. Now, again, kind of like Quandre Diggs. I mean, the scout in me, I, I see a 5'10", 180-pound receiver that when the wind starts blowing through that stadium, I worry that's going to knock him off his route. But it, damn it, it never seems to do that. I mean, Tyler Lockett is just remarkable. I mean, in that he just does it over and over and over again. So we we mentioned a great one in Ed Reed before with Quandre. Digs. I'm going to kind of 
cite a, or, or mention a, a great athlete in, from a different realm, and, and that being boxing. And, and I just remember Roy Jones Jr. seeing a guy that was short and quick and, and just was able to kind of dominate the sport for such a long time. That, to me, is kind of like what Tyler Lockett is like in that he is smaller, and so people kind of just look past him, look over him, whatever you want to say. And, but at the end of the day, he just continues to win, continues to, you know, to, to answer the call every time. Uh, I think that he is one of those guys that, you know, truly epitomizes what it should be to be like the NFL's man of the year type of guy. He was, of course, Seattle's, uh, you know, um, the, the person that, that they nominated this year. And I think that he deserves that um, because he not only is a great player, but he's a great man off the field as well, at least from everybody that he talked about, talked to raves about him. Uh, so again, I, I think that he is the type of player that we should be kind of acknowledging as underrated. I think this is the perfect episode to be talking about number 16. Only player in the NFL, Rob, the last four years with a thousand yards and at least eight touchdowns every single season. No other player, not just receivers. No other player has done that in the last four years. So again, nobody's got the consistency of Tyler Lockett going into year number two, capping off this segment here of our countdown. And I'm still getting used to saying Reek Woolen, but that's now what Formerly Tariq Woolen is being listed as on Seattle's roster. That's what he's preferring to be called. So Tariq Woolen coming off of a top three finish for Defensive Rookie of the Year, tied for the league lead in interceptions, had nine pass breakups. He was charged with five touchdowns allowed. I still have my qualms about that, but we'll leave that for another discussion. But nonetheless, a remarkable rookie season. Made the Pro Bowl as a fifth-round pick coming out of UTSA. He had played corner just two years in his entire football career. The last two years at UTSA, he's still really raw at the position, and that's what makes it crazy what he was able to accomplish last year. you got to give credit to the coaching staff, but you also got to give credit to the young man with such incredible athletic gifts at six foot four, 4.26 speed. You put all those tools together, and sometimes you can just get away with things because you're so much better than everybody else. And I think to an extent we saw that last year, but you also saw instincts that I did not expect to see from somebody like Reek Woolen, who had not played very much corner in any level of football. You saw some things that that was really what surprised me. The ball production, he was a former receiver, so you could have expected that, though he didn't have very many interceptions at UTSA. But you saw the hands and all those things. Those were more predictable. But seeing a player that became more comfortable schematically and comfortable with understanding football, I, I was not expecting that at all in his rookie season. And I think that was the difference maker. And oh, by the way, he's only going to get a lot better in that regard. Uh, I certainly hope so, because if he does get a lot better, then we're talking about one of the absolute best in all of the NFL, because he was dominant last year, Corbin. I mean, I, uh, you know, in, in the very first game of the year, of course, Seattle beats Russell Wilson and the visiting Denver Broncos. And, and I was fortunate enough to go to that game and, and, and be there in the press box. And I was asked to write an article for Fox Sports about who was going to be the standout in that game. And the, the presumption was that it was going to be Russell Wilson or perhaps Juno Smith and, you know, and taking over uh, the Seattle crowd and all that. And I wound up writing about Rick Woolen. Because when I watched him, I saw him absolutely take away half of the field. And I saw a quarterback and Russell Wilson, who I know 
will love to normally would love to attack a young corner. And, and so the fact that he did not do so to me, just set the stage for what a spectacular rookie season, the best rookie season of any defender in the NFL a year ago. I, that's a hill I will die on um, because <laughs> I, I just, I, I just saw, uh, you know, sauce Gardner and he made some great plays, but not the type of impact plays that Rick Wollen did for the Seahawks in every different way. And you talked about the fact that, you know, when we were in the pre-draft process that we had some questions about the, you know, the hands perhaps. I mean, he had one interception that I, I watched where he caught the ball with a, with a club on his hand. And so I, I wasn't so worried about that, but I was definitely concerned about run support. There were so many comparisons being thrown out there. Oh, this guy's going to be the next Richard Sherman because he's a former wide receiver. Ha ha ha. And people forget how physical Richard Sherman was as a run tackler, how reliable he was. I mean, he is one of the, the greatest, most reliable open field tacklers I've ever seen at the cornerback position. So I was terrified that there was going to be all this hype on Willen, and then he was going to basically just be a, you know, a rodeo cowboy and just miss every single lasso type of bailing, trying to trip people up at their feet, not really face up and tackle. And yet that's what he did. Uh, as he was physical, he was a reliable tackler. Sure, he had a couple of mistakes. And obviously, the, the, ending the year on the down note against the 49ers in the playoff loss hurts. But I'm hopeful that he is going to use that as motivation to be even better this upcoming season. And as I said before, if he gets any better, then again, we are talking about yet another great cornerback on Seattle's team. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube. We're almost to 14,000 subscribers. Let's make it happen, 12, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you don't miss a single episode. Coming up tomorrow, we'll finally be looking at that interior offensive line. The guards and the centers continue our training camp preview and i have a feeling that we're going to be talking about uniform aesthetics tomorrow as well rob should make for an interesting wednesday episode hope you'll be joining us enjoy the rest of your tuesday go hawks